Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, we have a really exciting program for you, as always. I'm always excited because well, I can't help it. I like doing these programs. I like talking with these different folks who have all these different ideas and concepts and creativity and are trying to you know, elicit your imagination, among other things. So um, I'll tell you what, normally I mention all of the stuff that I do at the front end of the program about when we are, where we are, how we are, how you can help, how you can get in touch with our guests and all those things. You know what? I'm going to save that for a little bit later, okay? Because right now we're going to dive into, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a novel in a series of novels that is going to take us down a road I think you're going to enjoy with our guest, M.L. Huey. Michael Huey is our guest. He's the author of the latest release, Nightshade. It is a Lily Nash mystery. Now, those of you who are into mysteries and all of that kind of stuff uh, are going to enjoy this. That's not to say that I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I have enjoyed a good mystery. Uh, my life. There you go. That's a mystery right there. Uh, I know how it began. I have a fair idea of the middle because I'm still in it. I have no idea how it's going to end. I don't know if the butler did it. Uh, I don't know if uh, I escaped from prison, wherever prison is. I don't know whether I uh, um, uh, uh, ended up on another planet or in another dimension or what the ending of this story is. Uh, and that's what's so exciting. We're going to talk with uh, our guest today. And Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I realize that's a, an unusual way, unusual way to maybe start an interview, but... Uh, uh, I would have to say that those people who have the level of creativity, as you do, to come up with these stories and these characters, uh, that's the other part that I, I, I love about authors. And we have a lot of them on here who some write novels and some write, you know, uh, autobiographies and some write uh, how-to and helpful books and so forth. Uh, thanks, first of all, for joining us and for sharing your creativity with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm curious as to when you knew that you had the creative uh, spark, if you will, to start writing specifically these, uh, this not just this series, but mystery novels or mysteries or uh, stories of intrigue that, that keep people kind of glued to the page. Um, I think you know that pretty early on and what intrigues you, <clears throat> excuse me, as a young reader. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was always kind of gravitated towards, um, um, you know, crime, thriller, sort of fiction, that sort of same thing on television and in films. Um, and I would say that these books, uh, while they're listed as mysteries, they're not in any way whodunits in publishing mystery and thriller, I mean, two very different things. Um, I think it would be more accurate to call these books spy novels, actually. Okay. There's a spy novel that I read as a young young man, probably in my early or mid-teens. Uh, I haven't been able to find the book. Uh, apparently, I must have the wrong title, but I just remember that it was so... It, partly because of the reader. Now, I was listening to Audible books long before they were called Audibles. I grew up legally blind and was listening to talking books for the blind and recordings for the blind. And the mystery that I was listening to, the title I'm remembering is called, it was called Operation Destruct. And I've even searched online. I've, I've done a Google search. Don't get me wrong. I, it's not like I haven't tried to find it, but apparently not by that title. But it was, 
I think it was a combination thereof. Uh, we're gonna uh, we'll dive into some of these aspects of of of, of your book here, especially Nightshade. But uh, is your book an audible yet? Is it? Oh, uh, the first first book is an audio book, Spitfire. Spitfire. Uh, the first book yeah. And Nightshade, of course, is, is sort of the sequel, if you will, or the continuation. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Um, your thoughts in regards to the importance, yes, of the written word and the written page and reading it, reading the book, reading the story from that page. But what are your thoughts about this? Uh, and again, I, I, I don't want to say it's a new endeavor because it's not. But this this burgeoning and exploding uh, area of recorded books for people to listen to. When they're sometimes doing other things, sometimes when they're not, they just they grab their favorite beverage, they kick back in the chair, they flip the switch, click the button, swipe the whatever, and they start listening to that story. Uh, I think however you get the story is however best suits you is is what you should do. I mean, you know, the audiobooks have been around for uh, 30 plus years. Um, I'm glad they're still with us. Um, I'm glad we have, you know, ebooks. Um, you know, I'm a fan of all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm an actor. I have a theater background. I'm a theater professor. And so naturally I enjoy hearing someone uh, kind of dramatize it. You know, mm-hmm. one of the fun things about Spitfire was they sent me um, three actors who had read the first part of the novel. And I got to give my input as to who I felt was the best person for it. I have a terrific uh, woman who does, uh, who does Spitfire. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful way to, you know, uh, connect with the story. Well, and of course, Shakespeare probably said it best that, uh, uh, all the world's a stage and we're nothing more than, and again, I paraphrase here, uh, we're nothing more than actors or players as am I, I'm just a player on the stage and this is my, so to speak brand. Uh, and that's how I tell people to find this program, especially on YouTube now. But we all play roles, don't we? I mean, regardless of what time of the day it is, depending upon who we are interacting with, we are, so to speak, I mean, you do this as an actor. You put on a mask for a particular character and you become that character. Uh, I mean, that's one of the most amazing things, I think, about some of these um, movies of, uh, of real-life people. And those who knew the real person... And all of a sudden they say, oh, my gosh, this guy, whoever or gal, whoever it was, I could have sworn the person they were portraying was right there in front of me. They they were so it was like they were channeling this person. Uh, have you ever had that kind of an experience on or off the stage or uh, behind or in front of the camera, what have you, um, where it was like. It just clicked for you and you were just, you were in that zone, as they say in sports. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, yeah, I've certainly felt that. But I think, you know, it's also interesting that sometimes when you feel like, you know, it's not your best work, that the audience goes, wow, that was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> That's the interesting thing about, about you know, uh, art uh, and specifically theater and acting and any kind of uh, media uh, is it's very subjective, you know, and uh, quite frankly, uh, to the actor, it doesn't matter how I feel about how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what the audience experiences. True. But at the same time, you have to derive uh, some level of uh, self-worth and satisfaction 
in the work that you do, which isn't really work because you love doing it, obviously. Just like this isn't work for me. Sitting here chatting with you, this is not work, but I, and I love doing it because I'm a curious individual and I, I want to find out more about who you are. Uh, how do, where do you get your satisfaction, whether, whether it's being an actor, whether it's being an author, you know, a speaker, what have you, uh, how do you, how do you gauge for yourself, maintain your level of self-esteem, uh, in those, in those different roles, shall we say? Uh, for me, it's about the act of creating, um, because I always feel as an actor and a writer and a teacher for that matter, you always feel like you could do a little bit better. You know, you always feel like you don't quite, I mean, it's a rare occasion when you go, okay, that was perfect. <laughs> Sign off. No problem. That's absolutely perfect. You want to do the best you can do. And, and in doing that, it's the creating uh, and not and for writing. It's not just the creating, but it's the recreating the editing and all of that, which uh, is very satisfying. It's hard work, but it's satisfying. Oh yeah. Um, I am involved, I'm not sure about you, uh, but I am involved in producing on Zoom, as you and I are speaking on Zoom here, uh, theater. Now, I'm the technical director, if you will. Uh, I handle the sound and music as I will produce the intro and outro with the credits and so forth. I know there are other proper names, but I... I don't really work in video much. And I just started actually in July of 2020 uh, in editing video. I've been in this business over 40 years. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've got this uh, pandemic. We've got this shutdown. Uh, we got to do something. And I was approached by a, a director who is local here in Santa Barbara. And he says, I want to do some theater. But, you know, uh, the only way we can do it, of course, uh, in terms of staying safe and everything is, is on Zoom. And we've produced a number of plays. Some of them we recorded, and then I produced uh, adding the music or sound effects and so on and so forth. And others we've done live. How about you? How have you been able to express yourself, aside from writing, such as the book we're going to talk about here in just a moment, A Nightshade, um, how have you been able to uh, keep going or ex even expand your, uh, your uh, creativity as an actor? In, in this particular time, I like to call it the COVID era. And all eras begin, they have a middle and an end, like all stories. <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> as oh. an actor, absolutely not. I mean, you know, um, you know professional theaters are closed. Right. Um, and so um, I have several friends who are professional actors. And I mean, you know, I, I think there is some work out there. Uh, that's happening, you know, safely where, you know, crews and everything can socially distance and stuff. But uh, theater is a super spreader event. So um, you can't really do that. And uh, yeah, as you said, you know, there are tons of playwrights and people who are producing things for Zoom. Um, and I've read some very clever Zoom plays, but I, I kind of think, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're still kind of waiting for, as you said, this to be over. Uh, plus, my focus now is on writing, uh, so I'm not acting as much anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, you are uh, you are a writer of these mystery novels. In this case, we're talking today. Uh, the, the the main focus, of course, uh, of uh, the writing aspect today is Nightshade. It's a uh, a, a Livy Nash mystery. 
Tell me about this character. Obviously, she is a main character for... This is the second in the series, or, or do we have others uh, that come prior to this uh, and Spitfire? That's the second. It is the second. So who is this? And I'm going to assume, because I haven't had a chance to go through this. Who is this woman? Where did she come from? Uh, what uh, Of what uh, stuff did you create her from? Uh, Livy is a young British woman uh, who lives in the... Um, World War II and the post-war era. Uh, this is actually uh, true, absolutely based on what happened. Livy was recruited to be a spy during World War II. Uh, the British, and to some extent the U.S., recruited amateurs uh, who had language skills, uh, gave them, you know, uh, 12 weeks of training in various uh, espionage techniques, sabotage techniques, and then drop them behind enemy lines in places like France, Poland, Yugoslavia, where the Germans have occupied those countries. So Livy is one of those. Uh, but these books take place in the uh, Cold War period, the very early Cold War, 46, 47, Nightshades in 47. And uh, Livy is a, a spy uh, working for um, Ian Fleming. Oh, wow. Who, uh, if I, uh, uh, Ian Fleming, James Bond? Uh, Ian Fleming created James Bond. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like I've heard that name before somewhere, <laughs> only a few times in my in my short sixty years on the planet. Uh, when you are writing, when you are creating, and you're putting the the words down on paper or clicking away at the keyboard, uh, and that's another quick question. I've had some authors here in the 21st century, in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, some people are still writing their works in longhand. I don't know if it's a pen or pencil. All I know is they're putting they're putting writing implement could be a quill for all I know. Okay, uh, to paper or parchment. Uh, they're doing it old school, as they say. How about you? What what method or form works best for you? I write on a computer. Okay. Uh, when you're writing, when you're creating, when you're putting the words down, when you're creating the scene, when you're painting that picture for us, do you see that in your mind's eye? Is that how you are able to put that together? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I don't know um, how else you could possibly do it. You're trying to paint a picture uh, with words for the reader. Uh, so for sure. Yeah. Very visual. Okay. And do you see any of either of these particular works as being transformed into something of the visual arts, specifically <laughs> maybe theater, maybe movie, maybe miniseries, that kind of thing? Is that something obviously down the road when it's safe to do so <laughs> uh, that that you would even want to to uh, broach that kind of thing? Or are you just you're just satisfied that. I've got the hard copy right here. That is good enough for me. I'm real happy. <laughs> well, I can't imagine any author that would not like to have their book turned into a movie or a television series for the money alone. I mean, you know, we're talking, uh, uh, right, and, and the exposure for your work, sure. which is what you want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you want that. However, um, you know, it's it's extraordinarily difficult uh, I just was talking to my agent uh, before Christmas, and she has um, sent my books to a, a UK TV scout, uh, and you know to talk about you know. But I mean, this is kind of like um, 
um, in many ways, spitting into the wind because far, far, far more successful series than my own uh, have been in what they call development hell for a long time. So it takes a lot for us, something, <laughs> everything has to fall into place for that to happen. But what I want it to happen, oh my God, yes. A theater, no. I mean, these books are, uh, are uh, you know, take place in several different locations in the Cold War. Theater is about language, about words, about dialogue, and, 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 and uh, in, a, in a novel, uh, you are able to, um, you know, like a film, go wherever you want to go, have whatever you want to happen, happen. Yeah, And you're uh, a little bit limited in theater. By the same token, there would have been people who would have argued that I believe it was the movie, I believe it was the movie Miss Saigon. They didn't think either, and yet they managed to bring a helicopter into the theater, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't that one of the props that they actually... Yeah. Yeah, yeah Miss Saigon is a play, right? It's a yeah. musical. There's a helicopter does land on stage. <laughs> right. yeah. Who, who would have thought? Spectacle. A spectacle. I'm just saying that theater is sure. not the, sure. the ideal medium by any means. Sure, I understand. Uh, I, I have to say that I absolutely enjoyed listening to books as I was building models as a kid growing up. And the stories that I listened to, I mean, one of the long, long series of uh, books that I listened to was Dune. The series Dune by uh, by um, Frank Herbert, I believe was his name, the author. And I was intrigued by the detail of all of the segments of society. How detailed do you get? How 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 much information do you go into, let's say, uh, in terms of either your character and their psychology and so forth, as opposed to the society at that time? And I'm assuming... If this is a character based upon someone in World War II, that what you're, 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 is there a particular time period that these, this particular series, and obviously there's going to be more, I would think, if they, you know, uh, with this particular character, uh, any particular period in which this is taking place, or does it transcend? I'm not sure what you mean by transcend, but it, these books take place in 1946 and 1947 with some flashbacks to the war. Okay. Now, how in how how much in depth do you go? I mean, and and do, have you had to do a lot of? Well, I'm sure you've had to do a lot of research. Um, that raises the next question in terms of research of history. It seems as though more as more time goes by, we seem to uncover more truths that we didn't know existed. I just saw a, a documentary about an island. Uh, off of um, England, I believe it was, that was a Nazi stronghold. It was a prisoner camp. And they were fortifying fortifying this island and so forth. And just as the war was coming to the end and the Germans were about to lose, uh, they destroyed virtually everything on the island. But now they're finding that there were thousands of people who were dumped into mass graves on that land. But we didn't, we didn't know anything about that. I moved to Santa Barbara. I was told as a kid growing up during Pearl, Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor, that, that the Japanese never reached the mainland U.S. When I moved to Santa Barbara, I started hearing the stories of how the Japanese made it to the mainland U.S. Uh, but we never were told that. So I'm curious as to the history uh, aspect of, the, of these works. Are, are, are you using factual information within these stories or, or are you kind of creating that as well? No, this is historical fiction. And so um, absolutely. I mean, if you don't rely on history, you're, <laughs> I mean, you're, 
you're giving up uh, something pretty wonderful. I mean, you know, you, you, you can't make up some of the stuff that happened. It seems so uh, kind of amazing. And in force World War II, most people have kind of a basis of knowledge for that. So absolutely. Uh, at the same time, this is not nonfiction. It's not a history book. Right. Uh, it's the story. The most important things are the stories and the characters and that they're moving forward and that the reader is still interested. So you do have to pick and choose what you, uh, you know, what, you know, historical facts. You don't want to belabor the yeah. point, uh, for sure. Yeah. Did you ever find, even though you may not have incorporated into the story, as you were researching some of the historical facts that you were maybe wanting to incorporate, that you found out something that's like, really? I never, I can't believe that that happened. Or that that was a part of, you know, I mean, I, I still am stunned at the number of non-German non-Third Reich uh, individuals, countries, companies, corporations, religious organizations that funded the Third Reich. I, I, it just astounds me, uh, you know. But by the same token, we're in a day and age, and I think the best phrase I've heard is truth decay. Uh, we're in, in an age where we've got massive truth decay, if you will, and it's like, who do you believe? So how, how were you able to vet that kind of information? And again, I know this isn't a history book, but I'm curious about your, your research process. Well, you find out a lot of things and then you forget it. And then when it's there, you know, when you need, when you're writing the story, then you can, and some of that is useful. You throw it in. For instance, these um, spies were doing the, these amateur spies, which Libby was one of them, uh, were taught to place bombs inside the bodies of dead rats. Uh, and when I, I've had two agents with this book and my first agent said, that's not believable. Let's say dogs. And I thought, well, really, you want to turn people off? You want to talk about planting bombs in the bodies of dead dogs? But it was rats, actually. There's actually a graphic you can find online from the from the training manual. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of extraordinary. Well, and when you think about that fact compared to modern day and even just going back to, to 9-11, who would have ever thought anybody would take an airplane and use it as a weapon? I mean, in that fashion. I mean, certainly... In World War II, the Japanese kamikaze pilots, they did. But that was a whole different thing. You were in combat. And that's what they did. Because they wanted their empire to win. Um, so it's like there is nothing anymore. And, and if you're not thinking outside the box like you're talking about here, then you're going to miss something. And that's one of the things I find interesting about our our intelligence uh, services uh, they 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 missed something because they didn't choose to think outside the box. They just kept saying, oh, no, this is the way that they always do it. And so this is the way they'll always do it until they don't always do it that way. And then suddenly you're surprised. Uh, it's like, where is your imagination? Because they got a great one, unfortunately, or not so great, if you depending upon your perspective. But this ties into also your journalistic uh, aspect. You you were you've been a journalist. What for about what, eight, 10 years or more? Mm -hmm. I wrote features primarily. Okay. Uh, features such as, like, I mean, on what kind of subjects? I covered education and the arts. Education and the arts. Interesting. What, what was the one thing or what are, what, what's the general, uh, uh, 
I want to say slant or 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 a takeaway that you had as you were covering uh, education in particular. And I'm I'm guessing what was it here in the states or was it over in the UK? It was yeah yeah it was the United States. Yeah. Okay, what was your big takeaway over those th- that period of time covering uh, covering the art uh, education? Um, public school teachers are vastly underpaid and work extremely hard, and it is a very difficult job. And yet people still go into it. That's the fascinating thing. Sure. Well, it's a high calling. I mean, you like children and um, you want, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of stunning that the uh, educating the future uh, is so devalued here um, mm-hmm. financially, at least. Do you, uh, do you feel that, uh, did, did you get the sense that, and I'm thinking here in terms of the public schools, I, I, I guess that should be the next question. Which areas of education did you cover? It sounds to me like it was uh, uh, primary, secondary, and so forth. Um, uh, did you get, did you see anything within the system that would justify the argument that the children are being indoctrinated with progressive leftist, et cetera, et cetera, concepts and, and so forth uh, uh, that, 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 you know, that the right is arguing that this is what the public school system is about and you can't trust an education uh, in the public school system because it's uh, nothing more than indoctrination or propaganda? No. Didn't see that at all. No. What about the, did you go into or look into uh, post-secondary? Uh, no, no. I, I just, again, first let me say, by no means am I an expert no, no, no. on the education system in the United States. I wrote features, which means primarily sort of, you know, um, I guess feel-good stories of, mm-hmm. about education. Uh, and so I just got to know people who worked in it. So no, I did not go into uh, post-secondary, but mm-hmm. I teach at a university and have for about 10 years. So, And from your perspective as a teacher in post-secondary, what is your observation of the, the value of education uh, of the students you're teaching that they received from secondary, uh, primary secondary uh, education? Do they come fairly well equipped? It depends on the university. Okay. You know, I mean, obviously some universities attract uh, extremely good students. Uh, some universities attract people who um, need extra help. Um, so to say that the public schools are spitting out cookie cutter versions of students and, into, and routing them into college is, is not true at all. Um, you know, they're, <laughs> they're all different levels. Yeah. Now, again, and I, I acknowledge you are not an expert. You only wrote features, feel good stories, that kind of thing. And I, I and I appreciate that because we could use some more of that uh, right now, a whole lot more of that. And we're getting some of that, too, from a lot of uh, the, the news outlets and other journalists around the around the country. They are showing how the teachers, but also the students. Uh, this is the thing that that really gets me is the, the criticisms of the system. And yet you've got students who they show incredible love and appreciation for their instructors, for their teachers. 
uh, over the course of whether it's a semester or a full year, you know, two semesters, uh, as I did when I was going to school, that you see these stories, these feel-good stories on the news about how they'll fill the gym with the kids who know this one particular member of the faculty and they bring the person in and they just shower them with praise and love because the person may be retiring and they just want to say, hey, thanks for everything that you've done for us. You have given us something we'll never get anywhere else. And that to me seems to me the kind of, uh, those are the kinds of stories that we need to be seeing and hearing about. Uh, have you uh, thought about compiling a a book in in that regard to some of this kind of stuff? No, because what I covered was specifically very local. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and quite some time ago. Okay. Uh, you know, about I left journalism probably uh, 10, 12 years ago. Now, you also said you covered the arts. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, how important do you think the arts are to our social uh, progression and development? Well, I'll um, turn that over to someone who is more well-known than I am, Winston Churchill, who once said during World War II, um, if we're not fighting uh, to keep the arts to, uh, this is when, you know, the Germans, I think, were looting museums and destroyed burning books, et cetera. And he said, if we're not fighting for the arts and culture, then what are we fighting for? Uh, arts, the arts and culture, storytelling is how we make sense of who we are and our time. Um, and, um, so I, it cannot be overvalued as far as I'm concerned. And you being a member of the art community, i.e. as an actor, uh, obviously that is twofold in that respect. Absolutely. And as a writer and, um, and everything I do, I mean, you know, as a creative person. Um, so yeah. I find it interesting too, as I kid growing up and, and then getting into uh, my twenties and thirties. Uh, you know, I would hear from the different school districts, uh, specifically in Arizona and Phoenix, where I was born and raised. Uh, well, you know, the budget's really tight, so we're going to have to start cutting some of the elective courses. And the more I thought about that, I thought, no, 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 you're going about this backwards. If you're going to cut, and you shouldn't cut anyway, but if you're going to, don't cut the electives. Don't cut band and art and music and and physical ed, cut the basics. Uh, and, 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 and someone said to me, well, what do you mean? How, how are they going to learn about, you know, reading and writing and math and, and uh, English and physics and uh, chemistry and so forth and all those different things? All right, very simply, let's go to band. Let's go to the baritone, which I learned to play in the band in high school. What's that baritone made of? How did they make it? Now you're getting into chemistry, among other things. How did they know which way to turn that metal once they made the tube and how thick and how thin to make it and on and on? And then the valves and the bell at the end and so on and so forth. You've got to have understanding of math if you're going to play it. You have to know 16th, 8th, quarter notes, half notes, whole notes, silence, you know, uh, the bass clef, the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the treble clef and, and so forth, the bass clef, that's right. Uh, then if you're going to write lyrics, and aren't songs nowadays, most, many, many songs, aren't they nothing more than poetry put to music? So now you're going to learn about poetry. You're going to learn about syntax. Seems to me like you're going to get your basics 
in the electives. And guess what? You're going to know how to play an instrument, even if it's just your own voice. How about your thoughts in regards to the the art that you're involved in, specifically of acting, not just writing, because obviously writing, you've got to know syntax. And by the way, the reason I asked you about your students of uh, level of education coming to you in the university level, I was asked to speak at uh, SB, uh, Santa, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, <clears throat> at uh, what I thought was... Um, the uh, MassCom uh, having to do with broadcasting, and no, it's changed. And I even asked the question during my talk, I said, does anybody know what syntax is? To which someone flippantly said, yeah, that's the tax you pay to a prostitute. They did not know what syntax was. And I put it in the context of a computer, and I remember learning DOS. And if you don't have the right characters in the right sequence, it ain't going to work. Uh, so what your thoughts in terms of your profession of acting as well as writing in terms of this aspect of education? Well, I think everything should be funded. I mean, I don't think we should cut, you know, um, core subjects. I don't think we should cut electives. Um, I do understand your point, but at the same time, I do get a little... Um, I guess, tired of the arts being used to teach other things. Um, it, that's great, but I think the arts should be used to teach the arts, to, to teach creativity, to teach imagination. You know, um, uh, it's very popular sort of memes that go around that says, you know, uh, you know, among my friends, you know, this with a theater major, you can do this, 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 and this. And I always want to say yes. And one of the things that you can do is to do theater with a theater major, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I think that's great. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the arts do touch so many different subjects. But I guess my answer would be, you know, um, I, I think as a country, we can find the money to, to, to make it all be there as much as possible. And I would not disagree with you. Uh, we shouldn't cut anything, you know, because, yeah, I would I would much rather. And I did take an acting class with a dear friend of mine here in Santa Barbara or in Phoenix, rather, I should say. Uh, she's a good friend. I've, I knew for 40 years. She was also a, a, an actor, uh, a director, a, a teacher. And um, I had a blast. I had never done acting before, never even tried it, never even considered it. Uh, and uh, then I began to realize even early on. That you know, again, using Shakespeare's quote, that uh, we're always ad-libbing. This interview is an ad-lib. It's is, this is improv, in one sense, at its best. But it it you know, and it does have sort of a direction because we did have a beginning. Uh, we're in the middle right now, and we'll figure out how it's going to end, and when it's going to end. But uh, I and and yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's like I'd rather go out and uh, play soccer, which I love to play. Uh, rather than sit there and try to figure out the mechanics and, and the geometry of kicking the ball in the right direction off of the foot in just the right way and all of that stuff. Let's just go out and kick the ball. Let's have some fun. So I, I kind of agree with you there. We're talking with Michael Huey. He's the author of uh, Nightshade. It is a Lily Nash ministry. And this is the book right here, folks. So you're going to want to get yourself a copy. Uh, what website shall we send people to that we are going to be linked to so that they can find out more about you as well as find out more about this series? My website is mlhuey.com. That's M-L-H-U-I-E.com. You can find out 
about both books there, about Livy Nash, and uh, you can also find links to follow me on social media if you like. Are you working on the next uh, chapter, so to speak? And of course, when I say chapter, I mean the next book in the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm waiting to the new year. Um, my publisher and I, through my agent, will be talking about uh, book three and uh, what the future of that is going to be. Yeah. What is the what are the parameters that are usually set up? And I don't mean dollars and cents. I'm talking about, I mean, this is, this is not a real thick book. This is not huge. I, you know, I could read something like this for me. It would probably take a couple of weeks if I just sat and read it for a couple of hours each day, if, if that, and by the way, I also have to compliment you on the text. Okay. The font, the font size. I know that's not your decision. Uh, but, uh, um, are there a certain number of pages that are quote unquote required, maybe minimum, maximum for something like this if you're doing a series? Or could it be a, a war and peace tome? <laughs> uh, that's between you and your editor. I mean, you, your okay. job is to tell the story. And there's no, I mean, you know, I think there's a, a classification of something that is a, a novella when it's a small yeah. novel. Um, but yeah, that's that's never come up, at least in my experience. Okay. And obviously, they usually put a time limit. They say, okay, uh, let's do this book three, and uh, let's have the first draft by October. When you're writing, do you even think about the editing process? Uh, it seems to me like that would get in the way if you thought, I don't know, I'll, I'll, let me delete this paragraph here because they're going to take it out anyway. Well, you have no idea what an editor will say. I yeah. mean, you know, you don't know. But I mean, as you hopefully as you get more experience, you kind of know uh, what works and what doesn't. And so uh, you'd hope with um, the first draft, your your first draft a little further along than previous first drafts. So. Uh, so, yes, obviously, uh, with two books under your belt, obviously, book three is going to be uh, something that, again, like you say, it, you know, you, he may not. He, she may not uh, knock out as much as they did in the first two books. Uh, you know, did you ever, do you ever uh, feel as though what they've removed was, uh, oh, no, no, that was essential. That's, that's part of the, we need to keep that. Or I've, I've finished what I've done. I now let, I need to let the editor do what the editor does, uh, do their job. And we just keep moving the process forward. Or do you ever take a stand on particular segments? Uh, it's a discussion. It's okay. a dialogue. It's not a, you know, mandated. Uh, the only thing that's really mandated um, by the publisher is uh, uh, the cover and what goes on the cover and the back. Uh, everything inside is up to me, basically, uh, in a conversation with my editor. And I would say that in, in terms of things that you end up cutting, you end up adding probably more than you cut. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I cut. And when I'm doing my own drafts, you know, subsequent drafts, I'll go back and cut things that I don't think, you know, move the story along. But then, you know, most of the comments, at least I get from my editor, are flesh this out. Let's know more about what she's thinking here. Yeah. You know, there, there are two, two parts uh, uh, when you talk about that. And, of course, this probably applies more to the visual arts, uh, movie, television, theater. Um, there's one movie I saw that the script was probably three pages, but the movie was like an hour and a half long. And I'm trying to remember the title. You probably know the movie with Robert Redford out on a sailboat. 
uh, and he was just trying to survive until he got rescued. So there was next to no dialogue. He was just doing what he needed to do, trying to catch fish and, and stay on top of the debris that was left after a storm had wreaked havoc on his sailboat and so forth. Um, I don't think it was called Rescue. Um, anyway, and then there are other movies where there's almost almost continuous dialogue, and it's more dialogue than, say, action. It's not an action thriller or anything like this. It's a very intense... Uh, as a matter of fact, the movie that comes to mind I'm thinking of is, uh, I think it's called like 12 Good Men, where there are these, these jurors who are debating a case, and you're, you're in the jury room, and, and they're going on and on and on about this thing, and it's just conversation, but there's intensity, you know, that goes on. Uh, do, do you have a great deal of, uh, is there a challenge in your mind as far as how much or how little dialogue might be going on in a particular scene in a in a in the storyline, or does it just kind of it just it just flows and creates itself as you as you type? Well, it depends on the scene. I mean, yeah, you know, if, sure. if people are talking, then they're talking. If people are are doing things, then they may not be speaking. And so, I mean, I, I guess you do want to have a balance of a. Uh, um, you know, scene setting Yeah. Uh, at the top of a, a chapter or somewhere uh, when a new location is reached uh, versus sort of uh, dialogue. I mean, I think people like to read dialogue. I like writing dialogue. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard. It depends on the scene, really. Yeah. M.L. Huey is my guest. Nightshade is the book. It is a Lily Nash mystery. Uh, as you said, it's based upon the character is based upon a real person. And your books are, and I remember hearing this term, as you described it, um, where this is, it's a novel. The novel itself is fiction, but there are some historical facts seeded or, or what have you throughout, uh, throughout the storyline. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your, uh, your teaching, uh, but not so much what you teach per se as much as maybe how you teach and what it is because of uh, uh, your, uh, your area of expertise, uh, how it is that you feel when you're in front of that group of students. And would, I be, would it be fair for me to uh, um, throw in what I said earlier about how we always put, we put masks on depending upon who we're in front of, whether it's an individual or a group of people? Of course. Are you feeling different in front of the students as opposed to in front of an audience as an actor uh, sharing yourself and what you know with them about the subject that you're teaching. What, what's going through you? What's going through Michael Huey uh, at those times? Because I have taught very little. I don't have a teaching degree. Uh, but I taught broadcasting and, and editing, sound editing to a group of people. I got to tell you, I was in hell. I was thrilled. It was like the hour and 15 minutes went by like five. And I'm going, no, it can't be over yet. I'm not through. <laughs> Tell us about that experience of, of teaching. Um, it is a performance. Absolutely. Um, you know, a different type of performance than being in a play or in front of a camera. But it absolutely is. The, I think the biggest thing that I've learned about teaching over the years is about them not about me, <laughs> excuse me. It's, um, 
it's not about me sharing my wit and wisdom. Uh, it's not about me telling great stories. It is about them. Uh, and so over the years, I've tried to make it more about them uh, and tried to emphasize, um, you know, the fact that the person who happens to be standing up at the front of the class uh, cares about you, um, you know, cares who you are, where you are, what's going on in your life. Um, because, you know, they walk into my class uh, two or three times a week for an hour, hour and a half, and uh, a lot's going on outside of that, especially uh, this last year, obviously. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, I, I try to come from. Uh, I think it would be easy, I'm sure some professors do this, to, in a college classroom just to lecture for an hour and 15 minutes and just talk, 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 and now you listen to me and, and, um, and write down what I'm saying. Uh, I don't think that's very effective, uh, especially in 2020. So, um, so I try to keep that in mind. And obviously 2020 being what it has been, uh, it's changed the modality of teaching. How has that changed your style, if you will? Well, if you're teaching online, obviously you have to use tools um, more than you were in a classroom. Um, but I teach theater. And so um, I don't teach economics or statistics. I teach something that is about human connection. Um, and so even on Zoom, <laughs> I try to, to, uh, to have that feeling, that face-to-face -face sort of, I know who you are. Um, let's, let's talk. It's a discussion class. Um, having a discussion with a mask on is very challenging. Um, so, um, so yeah, you do the best you can. Yeah. Uh, and I think everybody sort of has, at least in my experience, has sort of tried to do the best they can and, and sort of risen to the occasion, although it's tough. Yeah. especially for students. I can't imagine what this would be like when I was in college, if we were going through a pandemic like this. Uh, I mean, I think it's maybe harder for them than it is for people my age. Yeah. Do you think that uh, this pandemic has um, uh, been good for especially the writing arts in this case with your work, uh, Nightshade and, and, and other, uh, other works that people, if they're locked down, they've got not, not, they don't have a whole lot to do. So, you know what, I'm not liking the story that's around me right now. So I'm going to dive into, I'm going to dive into ML Huey's book in his novel and his story and his world, even if it's just for a little while. Well, the answer is uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, are people reading more? I don't know. Uh, but what it has to, this is my debut year. My Spitfire came out in January and then Nightshade was in September. And if we were not in a pandemic, you know, I would have been in New York City at, uh, at the International Thriller Writers Conference meeting readers. Uh, I would have gone to um, uh, BoucherCon, which is a big mystery and crime convention as well in the fall. And I can't do that. Yeah. You know, I can't see someone face to face. So the only way you can try to connect is through social media. So it has been extremely challenging. Uh, plus, you know, you hear anecdotally that people are not reading. It's hard to concentrate sometimes because we are, you know, because it feels like, you know, we're waiting, looking at the sky, seeing one of the asteroids going to come, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it's, there's a lot on everyone's plate right yeah. now. Um, sure. I know people have escaped through books. Instagram has a big book community. 
Uh, and so I've tried to connect there, but it's tough. I mean, I think definitely uh, pan the pandemic has, has probably um, hurt book sales in a, mm. overall. Well, I will tell you that if there were an asteroid coming, the first phone calls I make, the first three, will be to Bruce Willis, Tommy Lee Jones, and Clint Eastwood. And we'll get the shuttle all set up, and they're going to go up, and they're going to take care of it. Okay? <laughs> In 2020, that shuttle would explode on the wall. Oh, please. <laughs> I, I find it interesting, too, Michael, that uh, um, even during this uh, era that we're in right now, uh, as we are approaching the uh, the second, some would say the first, but I'm going to say the second year of the decade of twenty of the 2020s, that um, things are looking a little better. Things are starting to move a little bit, even though it might be sluggish. And even as I saw the changes coming back uh, a year ago, February, March of 2020, uh, where we shut down the country, uh, I was actually elated because of the opportunities that we didn't even know existed that were coming. But more importantly, that we were doing something different. And that meant that the end, when we came out the other side of this particular story, was going to be different than every other time that we went through the influenza. Every other time we've been through an influenza of this, uh, you know, in this regard, uh, you know, you just, you know, you suffered through it. You'd go to work, you'd go to school, you'd spread it around. It, everybody would get it. They'd get over it. They'd be immune. And then you'd move on to spring and summer. Uh, whereas then you get the, then you get the vaccine for the flu and Still, you still have that same issue, but maybe it's to a little lesser degree, but we're still doing the same thing. And I thought, great, we're doing something different. We don't like it. Many me don't like it at all. And I get that. I, you know, I'm not saying that we did the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm just saying it was different. Um, and it reminds me, of course, of Einstein's comment about the definition of insanity. Uh, your thoughts on the the unfolding year of 2021 well, maybe comparing it to 2020 a little because as as bad as it it was on one level i also think it was it was an incredible awesome unbelievable year in terms of the way we adapted as human beings Yeah, I'm, I'm like many people hopeful uh, for the new year. And um, uh, that's really all you can be right now and just kind of look back and go, well, I'll be glad when 2020 is in the rearview mirror. <laughs> um, and, uh, and hopeful that 2021, at least part of it, will, um, will um, let us talk about something else in the country besides the things that we've been talking about. Although, um, you know, it's important to talk about difficult things. And I do think even out of this pandemic, there will be some, um, you know, some, um, I don't want to say inventions, but some new ways that we handle things that uh, will be for the best. Maybe not inventions, but innovations. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Before I let you go, I, first of all, I want to thank you for giving us uh, this time here on the program. Talk about Nightshade. It is a 
a Lily Nash novel. MLHuey.com is the website. That's M-L-H-U-I-E.com. We will be linked to your website, Michael, so people can continue to find out more about you, the work you're doing, and anticipate book three. Uh, I'm just curious. Usually, you don't have one. Most authors do not. I'm curious if you even have a title yet. Uh, sure. Yeah, I always have a working title, whether that would be the title of the book, uh, when and if it's published, I have no clue. <laughs> then just, folks, just look for the Lily Nash mystery series continuation. It's, it's Livy, three. Livy. It's, Lily, yeah. I beg your pardon. Livy. Livy, Livy. Beg your, what did I, I said Lily, didn't I? Livy, Livy Nash, Livy Nash mystery uh, series uh, on his website, mlhuey.com. I ask my guests three questions before I let them go, and I'm going to do that with you in just a moment, but because I left off the opening announcements, I'm going to let our listeners know that we are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, many other locations you folks are reposting our interviews too. I thank you so much for doing that. We are on YouTube where you can go to my YouTube channel, Richard Dugan, tell me your story and you can watch these interviews. You can, even if it is via video, you can get to know the author or the guest a little bit better by seeing their smiling face and uh, enjoying our conversation, I hope, and, uh, and sharing that as well with uh, others. And also, I want to remind you that if you like what we're doing, you like the guests we're bringing to the program, uh, we would certainly appreciate any support you can give us. If you'd like to be a part of this, we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. We also ask you to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, as uh, we ask you to go within, to spend time going within yourself going and listening to that still small voice, finding that calm, peaceful place as we work our way towards the end. And I don't know when that will be of this era, but it will come to an end. We'll enter a new era, which will be, I think, a wonderful one, because that's usually what happens. You go from sort of the darkness to the light, and that's the way summer and winter are. You got a lot of light in the summertime and a lot of darkness in the wintertime, but we always go back to the light and it is cyclical. So take that time if you can. So, as we wrap this program up, my guest, of course, the author of Nightshade, a Livy Nash mystery. My first of three questions is, who is Michael Huey? <laughs> um, well, he's um, a husband, a father, a writer, an actor, a professor. He's a lot of stuff. He can't decide which one he likes best. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? No, with my books, I hope that um, I think people are transformed by uh, stories. I think people um, cling to stories. Uh, I think they give comfort and support, um, take you to new places, everything. Uh, so I hope that, that uh, there are people out there who are getting them. And finally, what is your life's purpose? What is my life's purpose? Wow. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my life's purpose is to keep doing what I'm doing and do it better. 
Well, Michael Huey, I want to thank you for giving us the time sharing yourself with us here on the program, as well as with others, not just through your novel uh, Nightshade, uh, but also through all of the work that you do. I, I envy your students uh, from the standpoint that uh, you've got a lot of experience, a lot of insight, and uh, you share that with the students who are there in your classes in person when that was going on on Zoom or whatever pro- platform you're using uh, virtually uh, during this era. And soon, as, hopefully very soon, you'll be back in the classroom uh, face-to-face, maybe with masks, okay, which will be okay for a short time because that won't last either, um, at least being able to connect energetically with one another. Uh, And I think that's probably the biggest aspect of the arts, especially with what you're involved in, as you spoke of earlier, uh, that is so, it is definitely so critical. You remember Hands Across America? Well, I can see the breadbasket of America being flooded by millions of people going in for a group hug when this is finally over. You know, I can see a drone overhead and it's just... Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, 760 miles wide and 747 miles long, and it's all of America come together for one giant hug that we haven't been able to have <laughs> since March of 2020. And I think that what you're doing and what you share is is vital uh, towards that end, whether it happens literally or figuratively. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices, helping to make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.